And as Luke is writing this section of his gospel, he does so in spectacular fashion. And he begins to draw his reader's attention to the most powerful man in the known world, the Roman emperor. And so he begins. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind, will see God's salvation. If you have ever had the immense privilege of visiting the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C., as soon as you enter the Capitol Dome, you understand the scale of the room you are in. It is absolutely spectacular. There is one statue after another after another of important historical individuals. There are six oil paintings on the wall. The oil paintings, incidentally, are slightly larger than the screens we have. They are 12 feet high by 18 wide, and there are six of them. It is a remarkable sight to see. Of course, guides run out of superlatives to describe all that the tour groups are seeing. But there is one painting that stands out above all the others. It was painted by John Trumbull, several of Trumbull rather, several of them are, and it's entitled The Declaration of Independence. And you will often see groups standing in front of it looking at it again and again and again. It took Trumbull several years to paint it. And he has said that the painting is to signify what took place on the 4th of July in 1776. But as you look at the painting, art historians tell us this. It is indeed supposed to tell us what took place in 1776, but there are major problems. The doors are painted in the wrong place. The chairs are not the chairs that were used in Philadelphia in 1776. The chairs you see are far too grand. They were plain Windsor chairs. The flags and decorations in the wall did not exist in 1776. And the heavy drapes, the curtains on the windows, were not there either. In fact, several of the people in the painting were not there And some people who were there are not there. So there are a number of, the best way to describe it is discontinuity. That's what's going on. However, Trumbull wanted 
each person who looked at the painting, not to focus on the wall and the flags or the doors or the windows or the chairs. He wanted you to look at the people. Jefferson is there. John Adams is there. Thomas Jefferson is there. Benjamin Franklin is there. And he painted each one of them from life. Over the years, he sat down with 38 of the people that are there and chatted with them, interviewed them, painted them. And he wanted you to look at them. Because Trumbull knows what we sometimes forget. That in 1776, on the 4th of July, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, and it continued to be signed for several months, it did what no other country had achieved. This document was not written by a czar or a sultan or a parliament in some distant shore. It was written by men here in the United States. It was written by a Congress. It was written for we the people, for we the people. Those writing it knew that if they were ever caught, they would be tried for treason and would ultimately be hanged. In fact, at the end of the declaration, they promised to each other to mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor because they wished to determine their own future. They believed that self-government was important and that no one else should determine for them their future. And Trumbull spectacularly has encapsulated all of that in his painting. And this morning as we move into all of the celebrations of independence, we give thanks for all that our founding fathers were involved in. We give thanks for the grace and goodness of God upon our national life and on our communities and in our individual lives as well. And the temptation for you this morning is to say, Richard, I'm hearing what you're saying. I appreciate the history lesson. Uh, thank you. But what on earth does this have to do with Luke chapter 3? Where is the connection? Because although we give thanks and honor for 1776, you originally took us back to the first century. So what does the first century have to say to our founding fathers? And more importantly, what does it have to say to us in the 21st century? Well, allow me to appeal for patience. Begin to see if we can't turn to the scriptures and try and make a bridge between all that we have looked at this morning. And as Luke begins in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of 
Abilene during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, why does he begin that way? Why does he even include this list? Why doesn't he simply say, the word of God came to John in the desert? Why does he mention the supreme ruler of the known world, Tiberius Caesar? Why does he mention Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea? Why does he mention local rulers, both Roman and Jewish? And why does he end up with highlighting two spiritual leaders? Why are these even in Luke's gospel? And they're there for this reason. That Luke wanted his first readers in the first century and for us today in the 21st century to understand this. That what he is writing was about real people and real lives and real places at a real time in history. In other words, Luke is saying you can trace back what is about to take place, and incidentally, what is about to take place is absolutely spectacular. And his list of imposing, influential, national, and international leaders is put there to act as a fanfare, to get your attention, to introduce to you what is about to take place. And that is saying something, because Luke in those first two chapters has already shown again and again and again that God was at work. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary in those opening chapters. The Holy Spirit also comes upon Elizabeth. We hear of Zechariah, John's father. We hear of the birth of Jesus. We hear of shepherds in a field nearby, watching their flocks, when suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and said, today in the house of David, a Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. And then he finishes what's called his infancy narrative, the end of chapter 2, by quoting the 12-year-old Jesus. I must be about my father's business. And the next thing we see is chapter 3, which announces Jesus going into his adult ministry and John the Baptist, the forerunner. In other words, Luke is saying, pay attention. What is taking place here is the Messiah has come from eternity past. God has longed and planned and sovereignly brought to pass his purpose and his will, and it's coming to fruition in your world. That's what Luke is doing right here. Now, having said all of that, you may now be in the situation of saying, okay, Richard, you've given us the history lesson. You've given us exegesis of John of Luke chapter 3, Please take it a step further. Please tell us why this is important, how it impacts us today, and how on earth do we apply a list of names of governors, Roman rulers, and Jewish authorities? What does that have anything to do with us today? Well, once again, be patient with me. Back in May, I had a birthday. 
And Ruth and Michael very kindly brought me a wonderful birthday gift. And it was a newspaper. Now, nothing unusual in and of itself, but the newspaper uh, was the Edinburgh Advertiser. And if you look at the masthead, you will see it was published from Friday, July the 5th to Tuesday, July the 9th in 1782. And so I am now the proud owner of the Edinburgh Advertiser from 1782. Now the question, of course, is why is that significant? Well, it's significant because on page 20, the second column in, you have these words appearing in a Scottish newspaper for the first time. And it says, a truce or suspension of arms with America, it is said, has passed the great seal and a few days ago and sent over to Dr. Franklin in Paris to be transmitted to the Congress. And the significance of that is this. The people in Scotland six months after Yorktown heard for the first time that there was a suspension of arms between the United States and the United Kingdom. It had come before the Crown Parliament had dealt with it. It had gone off to Dr. Franklin in Paris for him to involve it with the Treaty of Paris, which formally brought to an end the cessation of arms. But it's not just interesting because it was printed in 1782. It's interesting because Thomas Jefferson, when he submitted the Declaration of Independence, and I'm sure I've told you this before, was only 33 years old. John Adams was 41. George Washington was 43. Benjamin Franklin, who was the oldest, was 71 at the time. By that time, he was 76. None of these men had expertise or experience in conceiving and birthing a nation. None of them had run a federal bank. Federal banks did not exist in 1776. The entire population of the original 13 colonies was 2.5 million, half the population of South Carolina today. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Because they were absolutely convinced that they should have a say in their future. They believed that they should get to determine the future of their nation and what kind of people they would be. In Luke's gospel, Luke is telling us that the word of God came to John, the forerunner of Christ, whose gospel would impact and transform not only individuals, but ultimately nations and the whole world. And history changed because of his birth, his teaching, his miracles, and his resurrection. And the world has not been the same since. And Christian people who spend time in the scriptures believe that we have a right to determine our own future. We have a right to determine what kind of people we will be because we hold these truths to be self-evident. And we care 
about our nation, and we care about our children, and we care about generations yet unborn, and we pray for our country, and we want to participate in the entire process, and we want to play a part, because we believe that moral and spiritual values matter. We believe that integrity, and honesty, and transparency, and accountability, and righteousness, and holiness are important. We believe that these things should have a say in our national debates and discussions. And as Christian people, when we, I hope, gently, but graciously, with courtesy, take a stand on an issue, we do so with grace. And at times that will make us unpopular. And at times others will think we're old-fashioned, we're out of touch, we're a little archaic, but that's just fine with us. Because we are not simply going to follow society and culture just because it's popular. We will follow biblical principles and do so with grace because the word of God did not come to Tiberius Caesar. It did not come to Pontius Pilate. It did not come to the tetriarch of Abilene. It did not come to Annas and Caiaphas. It came to John in the desert. And all of these imposing, impressive, important people were not focused on him but focused on self. And as Christian people, we believe that God has called us for such a time as this. And we say with grace, we believe we have a voice in our future. We believe that we should have a say in how our children are raised and the direction our country is going. We have a choice and a voice. But we take our responsibilities very seriously, and we should. We should. John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, who we saw in the painting, became president, senior diplomat, was a senator. In fact, he returned to the Senate. And towards the end of his life, he was interviewed by a famous writer, and the writer asked him, is there one thing in United States culture and society that is missing today? And Adams had been around a long time. In his teenage years, he was considered a diplomat to Paris. He was there with his father. And Adams looked at him and said, we are fearful to excel. Wouldn't it be something if this generation, we, the people, in this 21st century cultural setting, excelled in grace, excelled in prayer, excelled in compassion, excelled in kindness and love, excelled in accountability and authenticity and credibility. Wouldn't that be worth having? A people who simply will not go along, but will stand firm for the things of 
God who will prayerfully engage with our nation, prayerfully engage with the political process, a people who will engage with medicine and law and education and finance, a people involved in retail and music and theater and arts, a people who have a Christian influence day by day by day. That's worth having. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that over the last hundred years we have come so far in some of the areas I've mentioned. And the temptation is to think having excelled in some areas, therefore we've excelled in every area. But it's simply not true. We celebrate and see well done and encourage the areas we can. And then to our horror, we put on our television news and discover a 23-year-old has left the funeral of her grandparent, flown to Utah, was picked up at 1.30 in the morning, has no longer been seen, and a man has been arrested for her death. What is going on? How long will it be to another mass shooting? We know that the very nature of sin itself, we have felt it and tasted it, is pathological. It is diseased. It is addictive. It has with it a tranquilizing effect, telling us it's really okay when in fact every person sin comes into contact with is left worse off as a result. Always. Sometimes it is so traumatic, families will never be the same. They become dysfunctional and fall apart. And we see it in child abuse. We see it in human trafficking. We see it in alcohol and drug addiction. We see it in domestic violence. We see it all over. And sadly, we see sin in our own lives as well. But as Christian people, we say there is a better way. Because when the word of God comes to us, it impacts us and transforms us and renews us and equips us to live out our faith in law and medicine and agriculture and education and retail and finance and wherever we spend our days. That's why he calls us to be citizens who participate in our national culture in our own communities, a people who are prayerful, a people who are engaged, a people who, by the grace of God, are equipped to make a difference. That's who we are called to be. None of us would say we are perfect. Most of us are aware that there have been times when, as individuals, we have got it wrong and we wish we could do it again but he calls us and he grants us his grace 
so that we could say in a 21st century setting that we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor because we are convinced that we are one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Not some, but for all. As we close this morning, let me read to you the words from the hymn writer. In God we trust, believing the promise of his word. His hand sustains, affirming the wonders of his love. His grace knows no boundaries, transcends the tests of time. For sacrifice births freedom, upheld by love divine. The years before us call us to trust and faith and prayer. Your nation's hopes and freedoms remain within his care. Enjoy yourself on Thursday. May it be a spectacular day when children and grandchildren will look back on it for many years. But most of all, give thanks to God for his faithfulness and renew again your desire to live for him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the challenge of your word this morning. Thank you for the comfort of your grace And most of all, thank you that in your providential care, you have called each one of us to live in a 21st century in order that we might excel in grace and in prayer and in compassion and love. Father, bless us as individuals. Bless us as a nation. In Jesus' name we pray.